pickleball is trying to catch up to the professionalism of other sports. And now it's one step closer with the addition of Jim Ramsey as the lead statistician for the Professional Pickleball Association broadcast. This is an interesting episode as Jim talks about what he keeps track of during a live match and also when he later reviews the video. So let's get to the intro to hear from Jim. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Today, I would like to welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, Jim Ramsey. How are you doing today, Jim? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Let's go ahead and get started today with where I usually start, which is a little bit about your pickleball journey, how long ago you got started, and uh, how that happened. Started playing about five years ago. I was in the local YMCA shooting baskets, and I heard this funny click sound from the other end of the gym behind the curtain, and I stuck my head around the corner and was intrigued to see what was going on. My wife played high school tennis, so when we had an opportunity to take an introductory lesson, we jumped in, and now we have been in with both feet for about five years now. That's funny that you mentioned the YMCA. I just got back from there, had a chance to play for an hour or so today, not quite as long as I wanted to. That's great. All right. Well, fast forward a few years, I guess, and somehow you got involved in keeping statistics for pickleball at the professional level. How did all of that come about? It has been a whirlwind. It happened mostly in February. But my personal background, I was a television sports producer for about 35 years. And then as a child before that, I loved baseball and basketball, which are two sports heavily embedded with statistics. So if you're a big baseball or basketball fan, knowing your numbers goes along with it. So as a television professional, I was always intrigued as I learned more pickleball to watch the broadcasts and I wasn't seeing the statistics on pickleball broadcasts the way that we do on other sports. So I thought that was an area that would help fans and viewers enjoy the sport more. And so I took the initiative to dip my foot into that to try to get things going. I started a Facebook group, Pro Pickleball Stats. And it exploded with 1,000 members the first month it was open. Within the first two days of the big surge of popularity, I had two executives from the PPA message me wanting me to be involved. And that's how I got ramped up to speed to being the on-air statistician for championshipcourt.com's PPA coverage. That is awesome. And I do have to say, Somehow I got connected to your group and I joined and my background is actually as a data scientist. So I love numbers. And then before that, like went back in my teens and 20s, I was a sports writer. So I was used to keeping a lot of statistics. In fact, I was played some basketball and was pretty much a bench warmer on a state championship team. So I would usually keep the statistics and then write about it afterwards, kind of playing a a little bit of a dual role there. So in terms of the statistics, 
that you keep, is this really a manual process at this point? Because we certainly don't have the more of the automated type graphics. I think that probably come along with tennis. Right. Right now it is completely manual, good old pencil and paper, especially during the broadcast. I am literally counting shots for every ball that gets struck and then marking it down on this big chart, like a spreadsheet in front of me, and then feeding information to through the broadcast truck to create those graphics that drop down and tell you, for instance, game one averaged uh, 9.9 shots per rally, or Ben Johns has hit 41 third shot drops and 21 third shot drives. So it is a very concentrated when the matches are live. Now, are you actually there at the PPA event doing it in the truck? Right now I'm working from home, which is nice. I've got the the comfort of my own Dan with the big screen TV. I'm also on the computer at the same time and on the phone to the truck. So I am in communication with them. And I do hope to attend some matches and perform this function in person throughout the season. Now, you are an experienced TV producer. So I would imagine that at the pro level with basketball and baseball, you probably have multiple people keeping statistics. It must be pretty tough doing it all on your own at this point. It is a bit of a challenge pretty much because I can't let up any time that the match is going on. When I first started watching some pickleball and there would be say an exceptionally long rally and I would wonder, okay, how many shots was that rally? And we weren't finding out. So I thought if I was wondering these things, then other fans would be wondering these things. And, uh, I'm happy to be on the cutting edge of bringing statistics to the sport and to the broadcasts. And I expect that it's only going to get bigger and better as it catches up to the other sports in this regard. At this point, what do you think are some of the key statistics that you're tracking? Well, there's a couple different things. Um, A lot of the recreational players, a lot of discussion always centers around third shot drop versus third shot drive. So I keep the statistics of those two categories for the pros in the matches, which gives you the percentages. That's an interesting thing. And it's just really also astonishing how few mistakes these pros make. The number of rallies that end on the first three shots or because a player dinks the ball into the net, it's really only like about 10% of all the rallies. So the skill level is very high. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback so far on the third shot drops and drives percentages. Now, do you ever think you'll get to the point where you'll be looking at the fourth, fifth, and sixth shots and keeping statistics on that? It's A lot of the third shot is connected to the fifth shot. For instance, you hear about, excuse me, a player doing third shot drive followed by a fifth shot drop which gets the player up to the non-volley zone line successfully. So I am talking to some people now about coming up with a different metric of measuring a player's ability to get up to the MBZ line and just establish that neutral ground. So it's not necessarily completely third shot related, but more, more holistic about how the team can level out the play. Now, what are some of the other statistics that you keep that people might not think of? 
Offensive lobs is an interesting one. It doesn't happen very much in the pro match. The third shots is always important. I'm just looking. I have an open mind. I'm looking for more categories right now, but we do a lot. No, I, I don't mean to say that you, you don't. I guess I'm just interested in this point at what do you think really varies in terms of the statistics between, say, women's doubles, men's doubles, mixed doubles? Wow. The women's doubles on the PPA tour is very competitive. The, a lot of the teams, the difference in the skill level is very small. So the rallies tend to be longer. The third shots are usually very strong. To loop back to your question about a stat that I am interested in is when a dink rally gets sped up, especially sometimes a dink rally will get sped up and a hand battle will ensue and then someone will reset and everything comes back down again. So I can't do, I haven't found a way to do much with that situation. So the situation I am looking at is when there is a dink rally and then there's a speed up that leads directly to the shot that ends the rally. So the team, the player and the team that's initiated that action, did his team win the rally or lose the rally? So I'm keeping that by player and then by the teams in each match to see who is successful at choosing when to speed up and whose decisions are paying off in the long run. I just did one match, the National Indoors from February 27th in Minnesota. And I was looking at the men's match. Let me find that quick. And Colin Johns, for instance, that speed up situation that led to the end of the rally, nine times he sped it up and his team won eight out of those nines. Eight out of eight out of the nine. And of course, when Ben sped it up, he won seven times and his team lost five times. So that's 15 on the plus side and six on the negative side. So the Johns brothers are very smart and successful about when they choose their speed ups. It sounds like especially Colin in that situation, because I know I've seen some of your stats and obviously Ben is, tends to be have a very high percentage rate in terms of that category. Yes, Colin, especially playing on the right side with Ben, he's very astute about how to do that. And that is a team that's going to have a lot of success this whole year. All right. So you mentioned on the women's side with their statistics, there's the competition is very high level. People are, are close in terms of the skill level. And it sounds like the third shot's very important. Do the women tend to drive it more or drop it more, or does that really just depend upon the player and the matchup situation? It does depend a lot on the player, the matchup situation. Take, for instance, Lee Waters playing with Anna Lee Waters. In the Nationals from last December, Lee did a lot of third shot drives, but then playing at the Indoor Nationals in February, her she hit way more drop shots than drives, something like 50 to 20 looking at the raw numbers. But at the same time, she, they were playing against Callie Smith and Lucy Kovalova, and Callie and Lucy were funneling the returns to Lee almost exclusively. So there's a lot of interesting cat and mouse going on on the women's side, and it's a great competition to watch. Now, if we move over to mixed doubles and just even talking about the third shot, the drop versus the drive, 
It's a little bit different on the mixed double side. It seems like it's regardless of who you see playing, it's almost always a drop. There are a lot of drops. Now, sometimes where the drive takes place and makes sense, say, for instance, uh, that both teams are stacking. So the female player has to return the serve and then run diagonally across the court to get up to the kitchen line. That's a good time to drive at that female player while she's trying to cover that ground to get to that spot. So we do see some drives, especially in that situation. But you're absolutely correct. The drops versus drives are definitely heavily in favor of the drop shots in the mixed doubles. When I was looking at that national indoors from February 27th, for instance, Annalie Waters and Ben Johns playing together hit 51 third shot drops and only 11 third shot drives. So it's one of the interesting things to me is Annalie with the reputation of being a hard hitter. When she plays with Ben, she's very good at matching her style of play with Ben and flipping the script totally to uh, incorporate a heavy percentage of third shot drops. That really is amazing at what Annalie can do in in terms of be able to play just about every possible strategy and, and game, regardless of whether she's playing with Ben or her mom. Oh, and for a 15-year-old, the future is so bright for her, and she is getting bigger and stronger, faster, quicker, smarter. And for a player like her, um, her peak and her prime is still in the future, and it's just scary to and exciting to see how she will develop and uh, what kind of player she will be, Just even just a couple years from now compared to now. It will be interesting to see if she's able to dominate on the women's side, like historically Ben Johns has been able to. There's so much speculation there because Ben Johns being a 22, it seems like he's been around for a while, but it's hard to remember. Yeah, he's 22. So he could be a whole lot better down the road. There's some women's teams that are very strong. I mean, Lucy and Callie have, have just won a few recently. The men's side, has some strong players and uh, the court being so small, I've noticed a lot of the players are taller as there seems, there seems to be a slight move in that direction. Like in many sports, you take two players of equal ability and the one who's a little bit bigger and stronger has a leg up, but a lot of the top players uh, on the women's side, there's a few that are like uh, Callie is 5'10", Lucy's 5'11", men's side, uh, Ben is six feet, Jay Devilliers, six three, AJ Kohler, five six one, Riley Newman, Matt Wright, they're six two, six three. It's very interesting to think about when is a Magic Johnson type player gonna show up to pickleball? When Magic Johnson came into basketball at six foot eight as a point guard in the 1980s, there was nothing like him around. It's kind of like John Isner in tennis. And uh, I think eventually some six foot six or six foot eight guy with an insane athletic abilities is going to show up kind of similar to the way Usain Bolt, the Olympic track star, he was six foot five. And, but his turnover rate for running his foot strike speed was the same as a shorter runner. So literally with every stride, because his legs are longer he'd be gaining two or three inches on his opponents just because his foot speed turnover was the same as them. So 
I think the day's going to come. We're going to see some six foot six, super quick guy show up in pickleball and it's going to be a real eye opener. I bet you're right. And I would imagine you'll uh, be there keeping statistics for that. And one thing I do have to say is how much pickleball did you watch this last weekend? Okay. Like the last weekend, this podcast comes out in about three weeks, but I had watched some of the championship matches at the indoor. I think that was probably the last tournament that you did. I mean, how many hours are you spending watching? A typical weekend on championship courts coverage of PPA, there'll be the two singles finals, then the three doubles finals. And that's usually, I'll say 10 o'clock to 3.30. So that's a five and a half hour window. We're plugged in and ready to go an hour before that. So five to five to six hours on game day. And then I record all the matches at home and I go back and rewatch them because some of these secondary stats happen so quick in real time, I can't keep track of them. Like, for instance, who speeds up a rally? It just happens so, so quickly. So I will go back and rewatch these matches and uh, double check the stats that I did take, add a whole new layer of other stats. And that enables me to present that report that I turn around and put on that Facebook group. What are some of the other secondary stats that you're keeping? Because I I think that's really interesting to differentiate between what you can do in real time and then what happens so quickly that you have to go back and take a second look. Yeah, what happens in real time also because the pace of play in pickleball, the players don't mess around a whole lot between rallies like you might see in tennis a player might walk over to the sideline grab his towel catch his breath fiddle with the strings on his racket and pick a ball they get the ball they line up and they're ready to go so on the secondary levels i'm looking at when a player dinks the ball into the net to end a rally doesn't happen at the pro level very much this men's match i just looked at it happened only five times in 116 rallies but people want to know it's like well how good are the pros really so I keep track of the length of every rally. So a subset of that to me is, okay, how about the serve and the return of, or the third shot? How many rallies end on one of those first three shots? Again, the pros are so good, not very many. That men's match I just talked about only six times out of 116 rallies. So between a rally ending on the first three shots or a dink into the net, something that happens quite often at the recreational level. This match happened 11 times out of 116 rallies. That's 10%. So the pro fundamentals are outstanding. Now, how long when you go back and watch that match afterwards, how long does that take? Because like you said, I mean, I could definitely, if I was doing it, I would definitely be having to rewind and, you know, look at things, probably the same thing more than once. Yeah, my left thumb definitely gets a workout on the remote control with the pause and rewind and play because I will always pause it on the third shot so I can get the third shot drop player drop versus drive done correctly. And then sometimes on a hand battle, I have to look at it again to determine who actually sped it up and what happened there. So typically say like a match lasts an hour when I'm running the stats on it. And then it's going to be an hour and a half to two just for the watch through and then probably another half an hour of 
doing all the uh, the math that goes behind. I'm thinking about this as you're talking about it. It's always good when for players to do their own video analysis and, and breakdown. Now you're doing a lot of this now, actually for for the pros, and I would imagine that the information would be fairly valuable to them. I think so. I've had a number of players, pro players, some recognizable names hop into the group right away, and I appreciate that. And one top level male pro just sent me a long message this morning that I haven't replied to yet because it was very detailed. And he said that he records his matches and breaks it down with the stats also. Some of the things that he does is exactly the interpretation that I have. And he had some new ideas. So I realize that statistics and pickleball is just a very new field right now. It's an overdue situation. And anything that we can do to help people understand uh, what's really going on, to bridge that gap between percept, what statistics can do here is bridge the gap from perception to reality by actually applying numbers to things that we're just getting a general feel for. And when different nuances and categories come up in statistics that will make sense and illuminate the sport even better, I think that's just a plus all around. Here. Now, in terms of one of the things I don't think we have talked about is forehand versus backhands. Do you track any of those statistics in terms of what they're hitting or where their mistakes are going if it's a forehand or a backhand? I have not been doing that partly because I believe the pros are so skilled off of both sides, it would just be a wash. That makes a lot of sense, especially since you're talking about really how few errors they make. That would make sense. Right. They're equally comfortable hitting from both sides. So I don't think uh, at this level or at this time, that's something I can be looking at. But it's one of those things that I might not know now what I don't know. And maybe two, three months from now, we'd be having a different conversation about the kinds of statistics I'm tracking and the backlog of work that I'm looking at to figure some things out. I am working on this one theory. There is, in pro hockey, there's something called a plus minus, which is simply when you're on the ice and your team scores a goal, that's a plus one. If you're on the ice and your team gives up a goal, that's a minus one. So it's very broad, but it gives you kind of a general idea of a player's effectiveness because it's related to the goals, especially a low-scoring game like hockey. So I'm trying to come up with a formula that sort of indicates how effective was this player in this game? Did he have like a normal game? Was it a great game? How much better or similar was he to the other players within that same game? I'm not, I have to run some tests with some ideas that I have and get a bigger statistical base to see if my ideas hold water or can be developed. And I hope one day we're talking about some we have some pickleball number where such, where a particular player was like a plus 21 for the game and everyone's ooing and aahing at his effectiveness. So the future is really high for something uh, as simple as statistics and sports. I love that idea. They've got the same plus minus statistic in basketball and I, I am a huge basketball fan. Good. All right. One thing we haven't really talked about is singles play. 
Okay. What's important in, in singles? I mean, is it basically the, the same statistics as doubles? Or what is it that really makes a player successful? Ooh, singles, for instance, I'm looking right now at a page from the PPA Arizona Grand Slam for Mesa in uh, February. Catherine Parento against Annalie Waters. And the, it was ver- the rallies are much shorter. The average rally might be like around five shots per rally. So obviously the winners, clean winners is a big statistic in singles. I'm also interested in, in rallies that end in the first, second, or third shot, which at the pro level is a much, it seems to be as much about concentration as it is execution. I'm sure there's a lot of tennis statistics that can translate directly over to singles and pickleball, but the ones that are catching my attention here, sitting here today, would be the length of the rallies and uh, clean winners and making those mistakes on shots one, two, and three. For the audience, can you define what a clean winner is? Sure. Uh, The way I'm using clean winner is the ball does not tick off the top of the net or strike, strike the opponent's paddle. All right. Well, great. To finish up today, anything yep. else that you think we should know about Jim in terms of pickleball and statistics? Let me loop back to basketball real quick. As recently as the 1980s, for somebody like me, that doesn't seem like it was all too long ago. The NBA Finals were broadcast on tape delay at 11.30 at night after the local news. That's how little the sports world thought of the NBA at the time. Of course, now fast forward 40 years later, and it's a gigantic worldwide product. I think pickleball is not necessarily on that same timetable, but I do see a correlation to it being not getting in the greatest of light at the time But if it can follow in the future path like basketball did and grow both in coverage and statistics, that would be a wonderful thing. And I'm just excited to be on the leading edge of bringing statistics into the sport, uh, into the broadcast of the sport especially. And I look forward to growth in both these regards, uh, both in general and also in the broadcasts that I am involved with, championshipcourt.com on the PPA tour. I would love to have you on maybe a year or so from now, just to see how things have changed. So Jim, if anybody wants to get a hold of you or reach out to you, where's the best place? The easiest way to do that is in Facebook. I run a group called Pro Pickleball Stats. All right. It was great to have you on the Pickleball Fire podcast today, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been great. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes. 